Section 2 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1D, Section 2, Chapter 38, Part 2. Whoever refused to take an oath acknowledging the Queen's supremacy was incapacitated from holding any office. Whoever denied the supremacy or attempted to deprive the Queen of that prerogative forfeited for the first offence all his goods and chattels, for the second was subjected to the penalty of a premunire. But the third offence was declared treason. These punishments, however severe, were less rigorous than those which were formerly, during the reigns of her father and brother, inflicted in like cases. A law was passed confirming all the statutes enacted in King Edward's time with regard to religion. The nomination of bishops was given to the crown, without any election of the chapters. The Queen was empowered on the vacancy of any see to seize all the temporalities and to bestow on the bishop-elect an equivalent in the impropriations belonging to the crown. This pretended equivalent was commonly much inferior in value, and thus the Queen, amidst all her concern for religion, followed the example of the preceding reformers in committing depredations on the ecclesiastical revenues. The bishops and all incumbents were prohibited from alienating their revenues, and from letting leases longer than twenty-one years, or three lives. This law seemed to be meant for securing the property of the church, but as an exception was left in favour of the crown, great abuses still prevailed. It was usual for the courtiers, during this reign, to make an agreement with a bishop or incumbent, and to procure a fictitious alienation to the queen, who afterwards transferred the lands to the person agreed on. This method of pillaging the church was not remedied till the beginning of James I. The present depression of the clergy exposed them to all injuries, and the laity never stopped till they had reduced the church to such poverty that her plunder was no longer a compensation for the odium incurred by it. A solemn and public disputation was held during this session in presence of Lord Keeper Bacon between the divines of the Protestant and those of the Catholic communion. The champions appointed to defend the religion of the sovereign were, as in all former instances, entirely triumphant, and the popish disputants, being pronounced refractory and obstinate, were even punished by imprisonment. Emboldened by this victory, the Protestants ventured on the last and most important step, and brought into Parliament a bill for abolishing the mass and re-establishing the liturgy of King Edward. Penalties were enacted 
as well against those who departed from this mode of worship as against those who absented themselves from the church and the sacraments and thus in one session without any violence tumult or clamour was the whole system of religion altered on the very commencement of a reign and by the will of a young woman whose title to the crown was by many thought liable to objections an event which though it may appear surprising to men in the present age was everywhere expected on the first intelligence of elizabeth's accession the commons also made a sacrifice to the queen more difficult to obtain than that of any articles of faith they voted a subsidy of four shillings in the pound on land and two shillings and eightpence on movables together with two fifteenths the house in no instance departed from the most respectful deference and complaisance towards the queen even the importune address which they made her on the conclusion of the session to fix her choice of a husband could not they supposed be very disagreeable to one of her sex and age the address was couched in the most respectful expressions yet met with a refusal from the queen she told the speaker that as the application from the house was conceived in general terms only recommending marriage without pretending to direct her choice of a husband she could not take offence at the address or regard it otherwise than as a new instance of their affectionate attachment to her that any further interposition on their part would have ill become them either to make as subjects or her to bear as an independent princess that even while she was a private person and exposed to much danger she had always declined that engagement which she regarded as an encumbrance much more at present would she persevere in this sentiment when the charge of a great kingdom was committed to her and her life ought to be entirely devoted to promoting the interests of religion and the happiness of her subjects that as england was her husband wedded to her by this pledge and here she showed her finger with the same gold ring upon it with which she had solemnly betrothed herself to the kingdom at her inauguration so all englishmen were her children and while she was employed in rearing or governing such a family she could not deem herself barren or her life useless and unprofitable that if she ever entertained thoughts of changing her condition the care of her subjects welfare would still be uppermost in her thoughts but should she live and die a virgin she doubted not but divine providence seconded by their counsels and her own measures would be able to prevent all dispute with regard to the succession and secure them a sovereign who perhaps better than her own issue would imitate her example in loving and cherishing her people and that for her part she desired that no higher character or fairer remembrance of her should be transmitted to posterity 
than to have this inscription engraved on her tombstone when she should pay the last debt to nature here lies elizabeth who lived and died a maiden queen after the prorogation of the parliament the laws enacted with regard to religion were put in execution and met with little opposition from any quarter the liturgy was again introduced in the vulgar tongue and the oath of supremacy was tendered to the clergy the number of bishops had been reduced to fourteen by a sickly season which preceded and all these except the bishop of landaff having refused compliance were degraded from their sees but of the inferior clergy throughout all england where there are near ten thousand parishes only eighty rectors and vicars fifty prebendaries fifteen heads of colleges twelve archdeacons and as many deans sacrificed their livings to their religious principles those in high ecclesiastical stations being exposed to the eyes of the public seem chiefly to have placed a point of honour in their perseverance but on the whole the protestants in the former change introduced by mary appear to have been much more rigid and conscientious though the catholic religion adapting itself to the senses and enjoining observances which enter into the common train of life does at present lay faster hold on the mind than the reformed which being chiefly spiritual resembles more a spirit of metaphysics yet was the proportion of zeal as well as of knowledge during the first ages after the reformation much greater on the side of the protestants the catholics continued ignorantly and supinely in their ancient belief or rather their ancient practices but the reformers obliged to dispute on every occasion and inflamed to a degree of enthusiasm by novelty and persecution had strongly attached themselves to their tenets and were ready to sacrifice their fortunes and even their lives in support of their speculative and abstract principles the forms and ceremonies still preserved in the english liturgy as they bore some resemblance to the ancient service tended further to reconcile the catholics to the established religion and as the queen permitted no other mode of worship and at the same time struck out everything that could be offensive to them in the new liturgy even those who were addicted to the romish communion made no scruple of attending the established church had elizabeth granted her own inclinations the exterior appearance which is the chief circumstance with the people would have been still more similar between the new and the ancient form of worship her love of state and magnificence which she affected in everything inspired her with an inclination towards the pomp of the catholic religion and it was merely in compliance with the prejudices of her party that she gave up either images or the addresses to saints or prayers for the dead some foreign princes interposed to procure the romanists 
the privilege of separate assemblies in particular cities but the queen would not comply with their request and she represented the manifest danger of disturbing the national peace by a toleration of different religions while the queen and parliament were employed in settling the public religion the negotiations for a peace were still conducted first at Surcamp, then at chateau cambresis between the ministers of france spain and england and elizabeth though equally prudent was not equally successful in this transaction philip employed his utmost efforts to procure the restitution of calais both as bound in honour to indemnify england which merely on his account had been drawn into the war and as engaged in interest to remove france to a distance from his frontiers in the low countries so long as he entertained hopes of espousing the queen he delayed concluding a peace with henry and even after the change of religion in england deprived him of all such views his ministers hinted to her a proposal which may be regarded as reasonable and honourable though all his own terms with france were settled he seemed willing to continue the war till she should obtain satisfaction provided she would stipulate to adhere to the spanish alliance and continue hostilities against henry during the course of six years but elizabeth after consulting with her ministers wisely rejected this proposal she was sensible of the low state of her finances the great debts contracted by her father brother and sister the disorders introduced into every part of the administration the divisions by which her people were agitated and she was convinced that nothing but tranquillity during some years could bring the kingdom again into a flourishing condition or enable her to act with dignity and vigour in her transactions with foreign nations well acquainted with the value which henry put upon calais and the impossibility during the present emergence of recovering it by treaty she was willing rather to suffer that loss than submit to such a dependence on spain as she must expect to fall into if she continued pertinaciously in her present demand she ordered therefore her ambassadors lord effingham the bishop of ely and dr wotton to conclude the negotiation and to settle a peace with henry on any reasonable terms henry offered to stipulate a marriage between the eldest daughter of the dauphin and the eldest son of elizabeth and to engage for the restitution of calais as the dowry of that princess but as the queen was sensible that this treaty would appear to the world a palpable evasion she insisted upon more equitable at least more plausible conditions philip and henry terminated hostility by a mutual restitution of all places taken during the course of the war and philip espoused the princess elizabeth eldest daughter of france formerly betrothed to his son don carlos the duke of savoy married margaret henry's sister 
and obtained a restitution of all his dominions of savoy and piedmont except a few towns retained by france and thus general tranquillity seemed to be restored to europe but though peace was concluded between france and england there soon appeared a ground of quarrel of the most serious nature and which was afterwards attended with the most important consequences the two marriages of henry the eighth that with catherine of aragon and that with anne boleyn were incompatible with each other and it seemed impossible that both of them could be regarded as valid and legal but still the birth of elizabeth lay under some disadvantages to which that of her sister mary was not exposed henry's first marriage had obtained the sanction of all the powers both civil and ecclesiastical which were then acknowledged in england and it was natural for protestants as well as romanists to allow on account of the sincere intention of the parties that their issue ought to be regarded as legitimate but his divorce and second marriage had been concluded in direct opposition to the see of rome and though they had been ratified by the authority both of the english parliament and convocation those who were strongly attached to the catholic communion and who reasoned with great strictness were led to regard them as entirely invalid and to deny altogether the queen's right of succession the next heir of blood was the queen of scots now married to the dauphin and the great power of that princess joined to her plausible title rendered her a formidable rival to elizabeth the king of france had secretly been soliciting at rome a bill of execution against the queen and she had here been beholden to the good offices of philip who from interest more than either friendship or generosity had negotiated in her favour and had successfully opposed the pretensions of henry but the court of france was not discouraged with this repulse the duke of guise and his brothers thinking that it would much augment their credit if their niece should bring an accession of england as she had already done of scotland to the crown of france engaged the king not to neglect the claim and by their persuasion he ordered his son and daughter-in-law to assume openly the arms as well as title of england and to quarter these arms on all their equipages furniture and liveries when the english ambassador complained of this injury he could obtain nothing but an evasive answer that as the queen of scots was descended from the blood royal of england she was entitled by the example of many princes to assume the arms of that kingdom but besides that this practice had never prevailed without permission being first obtained and without making a visible difference between the arms elizabeth plainly saw that this pretension had not been advanced during the reign of her sister mary and that therefore the king of france intended on the first opportunity to dispute her legitimacy and her title to the crown 
alarmed at the danger she thenceforth conceived a violent jealousy against the queen of scots and was determined as far as possible to incapacitate henry from the execution of his project the sudden death of that monarch who was killed in a tournament at paris while celebrating the espousals of his sister with the duke of savoy altered not her views being informed that his successor francis the second still continued to assume without reserve the title of king of england she began to consider him and his queen as her mortal enemies and the present situation of affairs in scotland afforded her a favourable opportunity both of revenging the injury and providing for her own safety the murder of the cardinal primate at st andrews had deprived the scottish catholics of a head whose severity courage and capacity had rendered him extremely formidable to the innovators in religion and the execution of the laws against heresy began thenceforth to be more remiss the queen regent governed the kingdom by prudent and moderate counsels and as she was not disposed to sacrifice the civil interests of the state to the bigotry or interests of the clergy she deemed it more expedient to temporize and to connive at the progress of a doctrine which she had not power entirely to repress when informed of the death of edward and the accession of mary to the crown of england she entertained hopes that the scottish reformers deprived of the countenance which they received from that powerful kingdom would lose their ardour and their prospect of success and would gradually return to the faith of their ancestors but the progress and revolutions of religion are little governed by the usual maxims of civil policy and the event much disappointed the expectations of the regent many of the english preachers terrified with the severity of mary's government took shelter in scotland where they found more protection and a milder administration and while they propagated their theological tenets they filled the whole kingdom with a just horror against the cruelties of the bigoted catholics and showed their disciples the fate which they must expect if ever their adversaries should attain an uncontrolled authority over them a hierarchy moderate in its acquisitions of power and riches may safely grant a toleration to sectaries and the more it softens the zeal of innovators by lenity and liberty the more securely will it possess those advantages which the legal establishments bestow upon it but where superstition has raised a church to such an exorbitant height as that of rome persecution is less the result of bigotry in the priests than of a necessary policy and the rigour of law is the only method of repelling the attacks of men who besides religious zeal have so many other motives derived both from public and private interest to engage them on the side of innovation but though such overgrown hierarchies may long support themselves by these violent expedients 
the time comes when severities tend only to enrage the new sectaries and make them break through all bounds of reason and moderation this crisis was now visibly approaching in scotland and whoever considers merely the transactions resulting from it will be inclined to throw the blame equally on both parties whoever enlarges his view and reflects on the situations will remark the necessary progress of human affairs and the operation of those principles which are inherent in human nature some heads of the reformers in scotland such as the earl of argyle his son lorn the earls of morton and glencarn erskine of dun and others observing the danger to which they were exposed and desirous to propagate their principles entered privately into a bond or association and called themselves the congregation of the lord in contradistinction to the established church which they denominated the congregation of satan the tenor of the bond was as follows we perceiving how satan in his members the antichrist of our time do cruelly rage seeking to overthrow and to destroy the gospel of christ and his congregation ought according to our bounden duty to strive in our master's cause even unto the death being certain of the victory in him we do therefore promise before the majesty of god and his congregation that we by his grace shall with all diligence continually apply our whole power substance and our very lives to maintain set forward and establish the most blessed word of god and his congregation and shall labour by all possible means to have faithful ministers truly and purely to minister christ's gospel and sacraments to his people we shall maintain them nourish them and defend them the whole congregation of christ and every member thereof by our whole power and at the hazard of our lives against satan and all wicked power who may intend tyranny and trouble against the said congregation unto which holy word and congregation we do join ourselves and we forsake and renounce the congregation of satan with all the superstitious abomination and idolatry thereof and moreover shall declare ourselves manifestly enemies thereto by this faithful promise before god testified to this congregation by our subscriptions at edinburgh the third of december fifteen fifty seven End of section 2, chapter 38, part 2.